meeting. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening. Help us to understand what it is that you want us, us personally, each and individual, each individual, us, to understand what you want us to hear through Holy Scripture. Because we know that you do speak to us through Scripture. It is just our either untrained or untuned ear that permits us to, or doesn't permit us always to hear you. So we ask for blessing on our efforts as we continue our discussion on the saints. We give you praise and thanksgiving in all things, in Jesus' name. Tonight we're going to have um, Steve in a few minutes talk about the use of the word saint or saints or holy holy ones or holy people, all of which means the same thing. Uh, and in different uh, Bible translations, uh, there are different uses of those words. Uh, and after that, then I will talk about the process of canonization, which um, I was going to just condense to a few words, but the more I got into it, even though it's, well, it's about 12 pages of minute detail, some of it is really interesting. And so I thought rather than um, condensing it and sort of giving it to you cold or uh, uh, from my memory, I'm going to read it. I hope you don't mind. Uh, but this book is excellent. And several of uh, you already have copies, but I would suggest that if you are really interested in the subject and pursuing it further, uh, particularly for those of you who want to be saints. Otherwise, you know, forget. Uh, is there any questions that any of you might have uh, before we begin? All right. So then I will turn it over to Steve, and he will then give you... Where do the weeks go? Boy. Well, I'm glad you're all here. I thought I'd start with a, just a quick review of the communion of saints again. Um, there's so much to cover on it, and I felt like maybe I left some some key parts out. Um, so another definition. Um, last time I gave you the one out of the encycl- uh, encyclopedia, the Catholic encycl- encyclopedia. This time I have Father John Harden um, who was a professor at uh, St. John's University in New York, a theologian. Uh, he's passed away recently. The unity and cooperation of the members of the church on earth with those in heaven and in purgatory. They are united as being one mystical body of Christ. The faithful on earth are in communion with the saints in heaven by honoring them as glorified members of the church invoking their prayers and aid, and striving to imitate their virtues. They are in communion with the souls in purgatory by helping them with their prayers and good works. Venerating the saints does not detract from the glory given to God, since whatever they possess, they being the saints, is a gift from his bounty. I heard it explained once that... um, the, the honor that we give the saints is like admiring a, a beautiful painting. 
uh, the painter doesn't say, stop admiring that painting, I want you to admire me. Well, that's the same thing that God does. He gives us the saints, uh, and he's not offended by us honoring them because they're his creation. So that was one way that I thought was pretty clever on how to think of that. Uh, and then I have in the Catechism, for those who want to go deeper, in section 946, paragraph 946, if you start there, this is where the Catechism talks about the communion of saints. Um, and if you don't have a catechism at home, it's, it's excellent reading. So, we said uh, a couple weeks ago, the communion of saints is the church. Simple answer. What does that mean for us? Uh, the riches of Christ are communicated to all the members through the sacraments. And then I have... That's a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas, by the way. The riches of Christ are communicated to all the members through the sacraments. Uh, the term communion of saints, therefore, has two closely linked meanings. A communion in holy things and among holy persons. So uh, part of that is that exchange in the supernatural offices. Uh, a lot of syllables in there, but... That's what that exchange is, the prayers, the works, and the joy of, of being part of the mystical body. All the sacraments, I'm reading now in, in section 950. All the sacraments are sacred links uniting the faithful with one another and binding them to Jesus Christ. Above all, baptism, the gate by which we enter into the church. So I was thinking about that, um, you know, supernatural offices, what does that mean? And I'm thinking, baptism is our entrance into the church. Well, if you remember, when Christ was baptized in the Jordan, I mean, the skies opened up, right? The dove descended, the voice of the Father. I mean, this is, this is a big deal. Baptism's a big deal. And if you can imagine, um, we've all been to baptisms, you've, you've seen them, they're um, I guess if you are the one doing the baptizing, it might, maybe, is it routine? I don't know. Would it become routine? How could that become routine? Um, the Easter Vigil, uh, we go to the Easter Vigil Mass every year. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of the, the most profound times in our church. These, they're make, you know, saints are being made right in front of us. Uh, imagine seeing the skies opening up and, the Spirit descending, and the voice of the Father. This, the same thing is happening for these, these folks who are being baptized. Um, most of us are baptized as infants, and we probably don't appreciate it as much. Uh, but hopefully these, these folks that come into the church when they're older, they understand um, just how profound that is. It's unbelievable. Um, still in paragraph 950, the name communion can be applied to all of them, all of the sacraments. But it's best suited to the Eucharist more than to any other because it is primarily the Eucharist that brings about this communion of love. I'm paraphrasing a little bit here as I go. Um, so that, that gives us a quick review on the communion part of the communion of saints. Um, and then I had a note here 
A distorted understanding of the church leads to a distorted understanding of our communion with each other. Uh, remember, the catechism says the communion of saints is the church. So if you have a distorted understanding of what the church is, you know, the communion of saints isn't going to make sense. So if we can communicate that to others, that's the key. So now on to saints. Uh, another definition for you. Saints, uh, a name given in the New Testament to Christians generally, but early on restricted to persons who were eminent for holiness. In the strict sense, saints are those who distinguish themselves by heroic virtue during life and whom the church honors as saints, either by her ordinary universal teaching, which uh, probably that public acclamation would fall under that uh, from the early years, or by a solemn definition called canonization, which Mel's going to get into later. Uh, the church's official recognition of sanctity implies that the persons are now in heavenly glory, that they may be publicly invoked everywhere, and that their virtues during life or their martyr's death are a witness and example to the Christian faithful. Uh, that's from Father John Harden's Catholic Dictionary. Uh, the etymology is from the Latin sanctus. I think we've talked about that already, meaning holy or sacred, set apart. Um, Webster Dictionary has it, one officially recognized, especially through canonization, as preeminent for holiness. So here you have a secular source, the Webster Dictionary, is recognizing our canonization process. Kind of funny, I thought, when I saw that. Uh, so then I, I thought, uh, okay, well, I need to find out the usage of saint in Scripture. And uh, does anyone know or maybe have a guess about how many times the word saint is used? Uh, this is a trick question. Well, this is the singular saint. It's only used one time. It's in Philippians 4.21. But it's used in a way that, and I, I didn't bookmark that one. Um, it's used in a way that kind of implies the, the plural. But saints, plural, is found over 61 times. Depending, again, depending on translation. Your New American Bible, which is what we use in the Mass, um, I, I found that, because I, I cross-referenced, many times it's, it's holy ones. So, you have to kind of, Maybe insert the word saints there when you're reading that. Uh, it's only used uh, one time in the Gospels. Matthew, uh, when it talks about the saints coming out of their graves after the resurrection. Um, so, St. Paul uses it to describe the living saints. And he's talking about the living members of the church uh, at the time. Uh, but he's also, in, in a lot of his passages, he's hinting about the saints in heaven or these other members of the church. And I have just a couple of examples that I, I'm not going to read all 61. But uh, If you have your Bible, you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I, I just picked a few that I thought were intriguing that might lead to... Future Bible study. 
You know, I don't know if you have this problem, but when you read Scripture, do you find yourself going, you know, on a wild tangent? I find myself doing that. I, I read a Scripture and I, wow, that's incredible. That that reminds me of this other one. Or, or I look at a footnote. Does anyone have that problem? I end up going, so it's hard to keep me in the into the topic. First Corinthians chapter one, I'm sorry, verse two. And again, these are just examples. If you don't want to turn there, that's fine. Uh, this is Paul's address to the the church, his first letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to you who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy with all those everywhere who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now, you don't see the word saints in there, but uh, if you look at where it says called to be holy, in the uh, in the RSV translation, that word is saints. Um, and what struck me about that verse is he's talking about with all those everywhere who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, certainly we can say that Paul was talking about the living saints in the church, but we can look at that passage now and say, well, I'm sure the folks in heaven are calling upon the Lord's name. Um, so this is the communion of saints that Paul is calling the Corinthians to. He addresses this call to communion in the rest of this this whole letter. Remember, the church in Corinth was, uh, I don't know how to say it nicely. How do you say it nicely? <laughs> they, they were having some struggles. So he writes a whole letter reminding them that they're called to be saints. Calling them out, basically. So that, this is a, a contextual marker. This, this gives us the context of the whole letter. Remember, you're called, you know, you're called to communion. Uh, Ephesians 3.18 is another one that I found interesting. Um, I'll back up to 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the holy ones, their saints, what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's calling the Ephesians here to comprehend this this call to holiness. Do the saints in heaven comprehend this call? They do. They lived it fully. It's up to us to to uh, meet that call. Colossians one twenty four is another one that I looked at, and again you can uh, you can find if you have a concordance or even online you can get all sixty one of the of the verses um, and read through those. Gives you a, a a more clear picture. Uh, oh boy, this is a good one. Um, Colossians one twenty four. 
you'll recognize this one. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in the affliction of Christ, in the afflictions of Christ, on behalf of his body, which is the church, of which I am a minister in accordance with God's stewardship given to me to bring to completion for you the word of God, the mystery hidden from ages and from generations past. But now it has been manifested to his holy ones, their saints again, to whom God chose to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Um, you know, just spending some time on this passage, Paul is revealing, he's completing the, the, the word of God. How? Think about Paul in the, in the synagogue telling this to the Jews. I mean, I, I can't believe they didn't stone him right there in the synagogue, drag him outside. He's going to complete the word of God. Um, you got to love Paul. I'm a minister in accordance with God's stewardship given to me to bring to completion for you the word of God, the mystery hidden from ages and from generations past. So here he is telling the Jews that they didn't know the word of God, basically. <laughs> Um, but now it has been manifested to his holy ones. Okay? This mystery that he's talking about has been revealed to us, his holy ones. You know, we're, we're technically saints. We're still under construction. <laughs> uh, we won't get into that. But how has this mystery been revealed to us? Back up a couple sentences there. It's revealed to us through the church. Which leads me to this, which sent me down another tangent to the catechism again. This is uh, paragraph 2030 in the catechism. So this mystery that Paul's talking about, right? God's word being completed. It is in the church, in communion with all the baptized, that the Christian fulfills his vocation. From the church, he receives the word of God containing the teachings of the law of Christ. From the church, he receives the grace of the sacraments that sustains him on the way. The way is in quotations. From the church, he learns the example of holiness and recognizes its model and source in the all-holy Virgin Mary. He discerns it in the authentic witness of those who live it. Right? Those are the saints, right? He discovers it in the spiritual tradition and long history of the saints who have gone before him and whom the liturgy celebrates. So the mystery that has been revealed to us is revealed through the church. And just what has been revealed. Uh, in the footnotes, sent me on another, another uh, tangent to 1 Corinthians 
and I can read it. It's, so the mystery that has been revealed, what eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and what has not entered the human heart, what God has prepared for those who love him. That's what's being revealed to us through the church. And that's actually St. Paul quoting in Isaiah. And then if I... I'm sorry. That's 1 Corinthians 2.7, which is actually a quotation of Isaiah 64.3. Paul's paraphrasing. If you, if you go and look at Isaiah, he's not using the same words, same exact words. But we'll, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Two seven through nine. First Corinthians two seven through nine. I'll read it. Rather, we speak of God's wisdom, mysterious, hidden, which God predetermined before the ages for our glory, and which none of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and what has not entered the human heart what God has prepared for those who love him. This God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Oh, the arrogance of Paul, I love it. He's telling these people that it's been revealed. So it's been revealed to the church, and the church is the custodian of this revelation. Um, you know, and we see it coming to coming to fruit through the centuries. Um, it's a great time to be Catholic. We have so many great resources. Um, and in closing, I'll go to 1 Thessalonians 3.13. At least in closing on my reflection on the word saint. 3.13. Typo. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we have for you, so as to strengthen your hearts to be blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his holy ones, his saints. So certainly Paul, okay, we said earlier that he, when he uses saints, he's talking about the members of the church. But, I mean, that passage right there tells us he's thinking he's thinking bigger. He's thinking the church is a lot bigger than just the members that show up on Sunday. So, to become a saint, we have to be holy, right? Sanctity, holiness, which led me on another tangent, to the catechism. And uh, for those who want to look further, it's section 2012 through 2016. And this will just be very brief. Section 2012 through 2016 about, yeah. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him. That's how, that's how this section starts. Uh, so becoming a saint, uh, all are called to holiness, all are called to the fullness of the Christian life, and all are called to the perfection of charity. 
uh, those those three things are related. All three of them, they, they go together. Uh, this requires spiritual progress toward intimate union with Christ, which necessarily leads to a battle. Uh, the way of perfection passes by way of the cross. There is no holiness without renunciation and spiritual battle. Sorry to break that to you. <laughs> so there is no holiness except by way of the cross. Uh, and then I'd like to read uh, section 2030 again. This should, this should sum up our thinking on communion of saints. Um, the, uh, the, the one line in the, in the catechism, the communion of saints is the church, is really, is really the answer. But then we have to find out well, what, the, what the church is. Um, it is in the church, in communion with all the baptized, that the Christian fulfills his vocation. From the church he receives the word of God, containing the teachings of the law of Christ. From the church, he receives the grace of the sacraments that sustains him on the way. From the church, he learns the example of holiness and recognizes its model and source in the all-holy Virgin Mary. He discerns it in the authentic witness of those who live it. He discovers it in the spiritual tradition and long history of the saints who have gone before him and in whom the liturgy celebrates. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. And you'll have to forgive my voice. It's um, it's that time of the year, you know. So uh, unfortunately, I have a little bit of cold. All right. Uh, a couple of things that I'd like to emphasize again: that many people, when we talk about being a saint or being holy, they kind of shy away and say, oh, well, that isn't for me. I can't uh, get uh, ever to that level or something, almost like they don't want to. And like I said, you know, the alternative is what? Hell. Literally and figuratively. All right? So, it is not that we don't want to be a saint or should not make the effort to be a saint. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we have to be on our knees or polishing our halo all the time. It means that we have to be working with the Holy Spirit to complete our role in God's plan of salvation. All right? As Steve talked about uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians that says, I make up in my own flesh what is lacking in the uh, sufferings of Christ. And I think I brought this up more than once, that when I first read that, I thought, well, what could be lacking in the sufferings of Christ? I mean, he's infinite, he's divine and so forth. But what he has done is he's left the door open because 
he's talking about his plan of salvation. That's the plan that uh, Steve was referring to, uh, both in Ephesians and Colossians. God's plan of salvation, and we all have a small part to play. And it is only when we complete that part through the cooperation and the of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, uh, that we become holy. Not by being on our knees all the time, not by going around looking like we're floating on air or cloud nine or whatever. That's not important. It is fulfilling our particular role in God's plan of salvation. That's what's important. Uh, what I'm going to do is go through the process of canonization, which I thought was uh, too interesting to just kind of uh, skip over it, uh, unfortunately covers uh, quite a bit of territory. But yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> All right. And, and Maria brought up a good question. Can you only be called a saint when you are in God's presence? Is that kind of sum it up? And you're right. A person that is officially called a saint is recognized as being in heaven. Because in the... Well, see, then they are a saint. Yes, by all means. Everybody in heaven is a saint. Because if you change the words, everybody in heaven is a holy person. Because he or she has been made holy either by her own or his own process on earth and the cooperation with the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. Or he or she has been made perfect through the process of purgatory. One or the other. And why? It's important that you understand why. And that is because God is divine. Divine and perfect. And the laws of divinity and perfection cannot accept people for a permanent situation uh, who are not also perfect. Okay? And that is the very essence of why we have purgatory and why not everybody goes directly from earth um, to heaven when they die. All right? A few go in the opposite direction, as you know, because they put themselves there, they put themselves there themselves.
that sound like Ted and Zelma? Okay. Uh, anyways, you get, I hope you get the picture. But Maria, you're right. The nuns used to give us, you know, the exact literal translation of saints as it is used today. But as we've learned um, through the teachings of Paul and others, that that name, that word is, <coughs> pardon me, boy, that's got to be cut out. The use of that word has changed many times over the 2,000 years. And that since Vatican II and the dogmatic constitution on the church, chapter 5, which you have a copy of, called the universal call to holiness, it means that everybody has a chance, an equal chance to get to heaven. All right, everyone. Does it make any difference where he he or she comes from, or what their life was, or whatever? It's fulfilling your role in God's plan of salvation is the only way you're going to get there. All right. Now, what we want to talk about is because the term saint has changed over the years, and because for uh, say the last 500 years of the first millennium, it got way out of hand, and you have many people uh, called saints, and there's no record of them, one being uh, St. Christopher, another one being St. Valentine. Anyone look up St. Valentine? There was a person by the name of Valentine, but there is no connection with that person, uh, with the idea of romantic love. Alright? So those people have been taken off of the roles of canonization because the church wants to be as accurate as it can be only by documentation. And if there is no documentation, unfortunately that person cannot be put on the role. That does not mean that he or she, if they are in heaven, is not the same. Um, So, the thing is, we should strive to, first of all, find out what is our role in God's plan of salvation, and are we cooperating with the Holy Spirit to fulfill that? And then, don't worry about what road that takes, or what it appears to look like uh, by other people. Right. I want to go through what the current process is in the in the uh, canonization. All right. <laughs> Pardon me. Right. Rome did not get involved in the process of canonization until the 10th century. Prior to that, it was by general acclamation of uh, the bishops and the priests in the locale of the individual that they were hoping to be called a saint. In the early, early church, it began with the martyrs. Those people who were persecuted and died because of their religion 
or faith or for their religion or faith. And the difference is, the difference is that if you were um, a Catholic, you were or a Christian, you were automatically persecuted by the Jews, and then because of the problem that that created with the Romans, you were then classified uh, as an outlaw against the state, and you were persecuted there. So, that means that if you suffered martyrdom, you suffered martyrdom uh, because of your faith. Others were put to death because of their faith. In other words, because of what they believed. There's a little bit of difference. One is that you are sort of corralled into a group. Uh, the other one is you are individually singled out because of what you believe. Alright? But that changed. After the time of uh, the Edict of Milan in the early part of the 4th century, the persecutions ceased for the most part, not thoroughly, but for the most part, and peace reigned in the church through that edict by Constantine, and peace began to reign, and then the whole idea of saints uh, sort of wandered, you might say. Uh, for a while, we had a number of very holy people who were then began to be recognized uh, as holy people, <clears throat> and because of the connection with what St. Paul used to say about uh, certain holy people, they then became the new focus of saints. So you had the martyrs who were called the Red Saints, and the later, for whatever reason, were called the white saints. Alright? And this is not an official uh, word, but that is where and how they were designated and identified uh, for centuries. Alright. In the 10th century, uh, the Pope got involved because the whole idea of people being declared by the local uh, families and friends and neighbors and so forth um, got a little out of hand. There was no uniformity of any kind, and therefore, uh, it was by the 12th century, uh, solely the prerogative of the Pope and his congregation, uh, of, uh, the rites, congregation of rites, R-I-T-E-S, uh, to declare who was in heaven, and that was done by virtue of miracles, that were attributed to the intercession of the individual. They felt if, uh, you know, Pete Smith, there's nobody in here by the name of Smith, I don't think. Pete Smith was uh, so such a holy person, then he uh, should, through the, his intercession with God, uh, have the power to uh, occasion a, a miracle. And that is, you see, I'm stumbling here a little bit because only God can create a miracle. Saints do not make or create uh, or perform miracles. It is only through their intercession. And it is because of their holiness and their presence in heaven with God 
that they are given certain permission uh, to have uh, God work miracles on their behalf. All right? So that is important to understand. Saints do not work miracles. None of them. Period. It is the their intercession with God only. All right. Beginning in the early part of the 12th century, 13th century, the year 1234, and not confirmed until the 16th century, did the Pope establish a strict criteria by which people then were declared saints. And I want to give you some of that background. Right. It, as I said, began in the year 1993 uh, when John Pope John the 15th canonized Ulrich of Augsburg on July 4th. You know, he knew that we were going to uh, celebrate uh, Independence Day on that day, and that's why, of course, he chose that day. All right. <clears throat> it wasn't until... Um, 1234, uh, as I said, Pope Gregory the Ninth formally incorporated with his predecessor's new rule into the universal laws of the Western Church. In the next century, when the popes were in Avignon, uh, from 1309 to 1377, and that's when uh, St. Catherine of Siena got involved, uh, more detailed procedures were put in place. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. In uh, the 16th century, uh, Pope Sixtus V, 1588, uh, established the creation of a Congregation of Rites, okay, having responsibility for preparing canonizations and authenticating relics. In um, 1634, Pope Urban VIII formally introduced the distinction between beatification and canonization. As I've said before, there are four steps uh, in the process. When the cause for canonization is first introduced, uh, it, the individual is then called servant of God. In some ways, we are all servants of God as we belong to the church. By the way, as Steve used the word church, as St. Paul used the word church, we are talking about the church, and we're not talking about just the Roman Catholic Church. The church, which is re represented by the Roman Catholic Church, really is all Christians. All Christians. The Roman Catholic Church is the mother church. All others are breakaway. All right? In some form or other. That doesn't mean that they're going to go to hell. All right? They have a right and a duty uh, to perform the same uh, completion of their role in God's plan of salvation and therefore they have the same equal chance to get to heaven. But because of their breaking away and uh, disowning or uh, rejecting some of the teachings of the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, they do not uh, partake of the divine truth that comes through the Catholic Church. Okay. 
Um, this is so long, I'm trying to condense it here because um, if you're if you're willing, we're going to show another video on one of the processes of, that it required in uh, the cause of canonization. Okay. The uh, whole idea of uh, identifying the four uh, divisions, as I said, the first one is servant of God, the second one is venerable. There's quite a bit of work done between the entry into the process where a person is declared servant of God, and the first major step is declared venerable. From that, after a number of miracles, two miracles are required, uh, the step goes, uh, the next step is beatification. Right? And then, the last step is canonization. Between beatification and canonization, it was required up until recently that two more miracles were required. That has been dispensed with. Pope John Paul II dispensed with that and changed uh, the whole process uh, rather dramatically by uh, eliminating a lot of the minute details that are required. <coughs> Excuse me. says here, no cause for beatification and canonization could formally be considered by Rome until 50 years after the candidate's death. That has been changed now by Pope John Paul II to five years. All right. Initial petitions had to be submitted by the local bishops, and that is still true. The first step and all of the uh, succeeding supporting steps still have to come through the local bishop in the diocese in which the person lived. Um, the whole idea is processed several times, and I don't want to get into all of the uh, details. One of the things I want to talk about, though, is the politics of uh, the whole thing. First of all, there is the idea of, is this an infallible... <laughs> Excuse me. Is this an infallible um, pronouncement by the Pope? And the answer is no. Because there are certain requirements when the Pope uh, uses the uh, mark of infallibility uh, that does not come up or in connection with, uh, or is not in existence there in the connection with uh, the canonization process. So, the idea of um, declaring an individual as a saint by the Pope is not a mark of his infallibility. But, the process is such that it is very close. Okay. But, and the idea of whether it was infallible or not. Excuse me. Yes, Bill? No, it starts whenever the cause is entered by the local bishop 
to Rome. Yes. Yes. At that point, they are then declared a servant of God. Yes. Yes. Sounds like a lot of politics, right? Yeah. All right, now let me let me read this because this book covers some of that. So it says if the linkage of the words politics and canonization has a jarring effect on some readers, they must have been thinking about you. <laughs> it may be because politics is too often associated in the mind uh, of the public with partisan activity designed to elect or appoint someone to or keep someone from an office. This type of politics involves the bestowing of favors, usually financial, on one group or another as a reward for its support in a previous election campaign. The word politics, however, is not being used in that sense here. Rather, it is being used in accordance with its classical meaning, namely with reference to the use of power and influence to achieve a specific end in the polis or the city, be it the public or the private sector. In other words, they're not vying to um, get a person declared or not declared for any uh, personal reasons. It is just because of <coughs> what it might cause or might be looked upon by others. All right. So, there is still a lot of politics in the church, throughout the church. We all know that. Um, and so there's no point in denying it. It says, however, the most blatant example of a politicized process in modern times is that of Hosea Escriva de uh, Balaguer, the uh, founder of the Opus Dei. Okay. Opus Dei is the work of God, a very, um, a very special organization. And if you read the Da Vinci Code, you know, it was... Uh, explained a lot in there, um, falsely, yes, uh, improperly. Uh, but nevertheless, unfortunately, uh, the founder of Opus Dei has somewhat of a questionable background, and yet he was a personal friend of John Paul II, who wanted to put him on the fast track uh, for canonization, and a lot of others said, hey, wait a minute, 
wait a minute, you know, you got to hear about this and you got to learn about that and so forth. So it has been stalled. All right. Although I think you will make it one way or the other. Uh, the thing is, a person who is presented in the process of canonization doesn't mean that that person led a holy and perfect life throughout their whole life. All right. And I think in a way that that is good for us to understand because it gives us a chance. It says, you know, even, even we poor weak people have a chance. But look at people, for example, like, uh, St. Francis of Assisi came from a very wealthy family and, uh, he enjoyed the good life and wanted to do, uh, great things for the church, but he wanted to do them his way. Uh, finally, God put him uh, in his place by, first of all, shattering one of his legs uh, in uh, a battle, I think, that he tried to get involved in in trying to get to the sultan, uh, who was the head of the uh, Moors at the time, and so forth. You have another one in St. Ignatius Loyola, who also led a very, uh, let's say, colorful life. Look at St. Paul himself, uh, persecuted a lot of Christians. So, the point I'm making here is that um, whether uh, this um, Jose, uh, Jose Marias Escriva de Belaguer, um, the founder of Hobbes Day, was uh, or is in heaven or not, is not up to us to say. Okay. Um, well, maybe he is. Maybe he is. Um, all right. Well, Steve said that he's already been canonized. Well, too late. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. But you do. You do have a lot of politics. I grant you. It's slightly different than our uh, secular political scene. Uh, but not a lot different. Okay. Uh, there's another thing that I want to talk about. Um, the myths and legends that develop around a lot of saints. I mentioned St. Francis of Assisi. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, there are so many legends and myths surrounding him that it's hard to separate fact from fiction. We have to look at the simplicity of the individual himself and kind of ignore a lot of those. Um, if you take the uh, wolf of, uh, well, I think it's called Gubbio, I'm not sure of that pronunciation. Um, there's a whole story about uh, this wolf, wolf that terrorized the, the village and uh, St. Uh, Francis, you know, um, contacts the wolf in some way or there's a confrontation and uh, he scolds the wolf and the wolf then becomes like a little puppy dog. Well, whether that's true or not, we don't know. The other one is about talking to the birds. You know, that's for the birds, I think. Uh, but you have a, a lot of things, uh, stories like that. In the same way, 
with many other saints. Um, you've got to be very careful. The one that just turns me uh, is the one about uh, um, buying a statue of St. Joseph and burying him in your backyard upside down when you want to sell your house. Okay? Many people uh, just um, think that's gospel truth. Alright? It's superstition. Yes. Please, don't get involved in that kind of stuff. Okay? Um, if, if you don't um, know the real facts and so forth, just stay away from it. Okay? So there's a number of problems like that. Um, I don't want to bore you with uh, any more of, of this, but I do highly recommend that even if you don't buy the book, although somebody got one for 68 cents or something like that uh, in the used bookstore, but uh, this book is really worthwhile. A lot of very interesting information. All right. I want to show you this video here. It might run over a little bit of time. This video is about Solanus Casey. He is now declared venerable. Uh, he is a Franciscan monk who lived in Detroit, Michigan, although he was born in Wisconsin, I forget just where. Uh, but he lived most of his life in the Franciscan monastery on Mount Elliott in uh, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, my godfather and second cousin used to uh, know him because he worked down the street as a fireman and used to do little odd jobs. Uh, during the Depression, uh, when Solanus Casey was present. He was a man very much like St. John Vianney, the Curie de Ars, who was not the brightest person, and when he was canon, uh, well, when he was ordained, uh, they wouldn't let him hear confessions or preach to the, uh, public on Sunday, because they just felt he wasn't quite bright enough. Alright? And then, here they had this man who could say Mass, but he couldn't hear confessions, he couldn't preach. What are they going to do with it? So they made him the doorkeeper because St. Bonaventure Monastery had a very noted soup kitchen and it had a lot of counseling services. So he would answer the door and he would find out who the person would wanted to see and what their problem was. And after a while, he began to uh, give his own advice without realizing it and saying, uh, oh, well, you know, your daughter will get well. Have faith in God. And the daughter did get well. The story that I, I really like, and you will see Brother Leo on here. Brother Leo is a friend of my family. Uh, and, you know, we, we know him very well. Um, he tells the story that he, as a very young novice at the monastery, worked with uh, Father Casey. And one day, it was a very hot day in the summer, and of course this was before air conditioning, uh, somebody wanted to treat uh, Father Casey and Brother Leo, so they brought in two huge ice cream cones. And well, you know what happens to an ice cream cone on a very hot day. But they had a long line of people who still wanted to come in uh, to the monastery and see various people and wanted to be helped. So Brother Leo said, 
um, that Solana's case, he said, put the ice cream cones here in the drawer and we'll worry about those afterwards. They took care of all of these people for hours. When they were all satisfied and all the people were gone, Solana's Casey said, now we'll enjoy our ice cream. He opened the drawer and there the ice cream cones were just as they were when they were brought in. Uh, now, whether that's legend or fable or truth, we don't know. You know, and I'm not going to worry about it. It's an interesting little story. Okay, so with all of that, I'm going to turn this thing on. And <laughs> so, God loves ice cream. Yeah, so do I. Uh, but <laughs> like that? Brother uh, Leo uh, Wollenrepper is a friend of our family and he's still uh, alive. He's 93. He was 93 last September when I was there. Uh, and uh, Father Richard uh, Merling, uh, he's also still there. Um, it's a it's a wonderful place. I've been there many times uh, to the small chapel where his body was brought in when it was exhumed. Um, and that's where uh, Father Casey was often found at the kneeling at the foot of the altar in the morning, sound asleep because he had prayed all night. So it's a very interesting subject. Uh, a very interesting person. I didn't know him personally, uh, but like I said, my cousin, who was also my godfather, uh, was a personal friend, and uh, it seems that uh, I've become practically one of his followers myself, even though I didn't ever personally meet him. Uh, any questions? I'm sorry to have kept you so long. I have another uh, DVD just on the last part, the exhumation of the body, uh, and it was it's a, taken by one of the people that was there. It's very amateur, but nevertheless the same thing. And frankly, that was what I thought I was bringing in. I yeah, well, you can see that you know anybody can become a saint. Yes, Bill. You have to wonder when they said he was dismissed. In the walking, and he was not, it's my understanding that he was praying and he was told to go to Detroit. Uh, kind of curious, you know, he walks into Detroit with his clothes, what do you mean? He's here I am. And you're like, yeah, who he is. Well, you know, that's kind of the way, uh, monks lived in that day. Yeah. It's a lot different today. Um, the monastery in itself uh, has a museum now that has been uh, built alongside the church uh, where you saw the casket there and so forth. That used to be one of the side altar areas and now it has been remodeled 
but the outside looks like still the old church that's and monastery that's about 150 years old. My grandparents are buried in the cemetery across the street. Yes. I'll show a little more ignorance here because a lot of their names were followed by OFM or What is the Capuchin? Capuchin. See, there's there's two uh, two branches of the uh, orders of friar minor. That's the OFM. That's what that stands for, Order of Friar, Friars Minor, and Capuchin, and then there's the decals. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry to keep you so late, but I thought it was interesting and worthwhile. I just didn't think it was that long. <laughs> but anyway, let's say a quick prayer and save your questions for next week. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord, thank you for allowing us to see this beautiful DVD and Help us then to uh, try to emulate uh, the saints, but always in accordance with your holy will. Not what we want, but what you want from us and through us. So we ask your blessing on our efforts as we try to gain uh, admittance to that great role of the saints. So we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.